Cherokee said, whoa, there must be 100, 200 people in there because the fire was constant. You know, one man shoots, it falls back, he reloads. And you know, with a musket, it takes some time to, you know, you fire and then you're very vulnerable until you're completely reloaded and aimed again. And that can be as much as three or four minutes. That's lethal. You know, that can be lethal on the battlefield. It was pure genius because as soon as one man fired, he drops to the ground, he reloads, the other guy rises up, finds his target, and shoots. The Cherokees were wowed. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. History Man is excited to have Dennis Chastain talking to us today. He is the Blue Wall Vice President of the Pickens County Historical Society an interpretive naturalist and tour guide and outdoor writer for the South Carolina Wildlife Magazine. Now, from this point on, I have read quite a bit uh, different accounts of this, and there's a different timeline and a different chronology. I'm going to tell you the one that only makes sense to me because I know the terrain, I know what's possible and not what's not possible. Some sources maintain that they, you know, after daylight, they kind of recovered their losses and buried their dead and moved on and went out. That's not possible that 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 did not happen they are we also know from the historic record that he left 200 soldiers to build what would later become fort rutledge named for john rutledge president continental government and uh here's the most credible account that i know is they kind of recovered from the losses they had quite a number of men killed and uh they went back to their camp on and again i get two sources one it was either 23 mile creek or 26 Mile Creek, which is shown on old maps as 6 and 20 and 3 and 20 Creeks. And uh, stayed there at the camp, and then he released his men, furloughed his men to go home. Because when I talk about things that just could not have happened, when you're on a, a mission like that, you travel light. You know, it's you and your musket and a saber and a knife and whatever food you need to survive for There's not a big baggage train. You don't have a wagon train two miles long and this kind of thing. So they did not have tools to build Fort Rutledge. That takes whip saws and kegs of nails and chain for the gate and a lot of a lot of material. The most credible account I have is that they left that scene, went back to either six uh, six and twenty creek or three and twenty creek where they had camped the night before. He furloughed his men, told them to be back in two weeks. Which they did. They requisitioned the materials to build Fort Rutledge from Charleston. They arrived on the scene. They all went back. He left 200 soldiers there to build the fort. And I have only recently found documentation of this. It's quite a surprise to me because no one apparently ever had seen this before. He also had his men, I suppose, to protect those two, 200 troops building the fort from from. Cherokee sneaking in on them. There were two or three roads heading in different directions. One of them went to Fort Prince George and Kiwi Town, the principal Cherokee village upstream on the Kiwi River. And that road led to this ford on the Seneca River and they could easily be surprised. Cher- a, a fairly large party of Cherokees could move down that road, take them by surprise and, and overwhelm them. Being only 200 men there. So he had them build earthworks in two or three different places. The one that I found documentation of was on 18 Mile Creek, which actually runs through the town of Pendleton and was a ford. You had to ford 18 Mile Creek and 
like I said, we, we know where that ford was because it's one of the few places there that has a hard bottom. And also there's some remnants of the old uh, colonial era road is there. So he had that done. Then they proceeded on up to, well, he did one more thing there. His plan, and I'm talking about Andrew Williamson now, Andrew Williamson's plan was to, I, I describe it as a scorch and burn campaign. It was, when it was completed, devastating to the Cherokees. There, there was no chance that they could recover. Did you have a question? Yeah, so they had the, they had the fight right there at Seneca, Yeah. right? And now we're talking about uh, the scorched earth policy. So he went up and burned other towns absolutely abs after, all the way after to, the Seneca Valley. Back. Yes, all so the way to Eastern Tennessee. For two, two weeks, yep. and then he came back and then started that? Yes, he left okay. the 200 troops there. That, that's their mission. They're, they're to build okay. Fort Rutledge. And what Fort Rutledge was to be was to be a refuge for the settlers. I got you. If they get under you. Indian attack again, they got a place they can go to. All right. And also, for a period, he could not have foreseen this, but the, the, there was also a fort similar to that at Oconee Station. It wasn't really a fort, but it was a place where rangers, there were rangers after the Revolutionary War because there were a lot of renegades and rogues and still ravaging the countryside and the, and the local settlers could go and have protection there. But this was this was a bona fide fort. Uh, it's being excavated right now. Uh, Josh Catalano and David Marks, the two Clemson professors. Now this is their second summer. They only do the excavations during the summer because you know they're they teach, too, and they're using students uh, to excavate it. Uh, my wife Jane and I went over there the first summer, and they had called me, asked me to come over there. Will Hyatt, who's in charge of all the Clemson Historic Properties, Will, I know Will, Will quite well, and he knows of my affinity for old Colonial Road. And they had found an old roadbed <laughs> on the site where, where Fort Rutledge was. And they want to know where it went and what's the significance of this and everything. Well, I happen to have the plat for that site for where Fort Rutledge was. And there's a road going through there. It says Road to 96. Well, the Road to 96 is the Cherokee Path that I wrote the article in the Wildlife Magazine about it that bisected South Carolina and was so fundamentally important. So anyway, we go over there and I share all my documents with them. And they have assembled quite an impressive documentary record of old Fort Rutledge. In the 1930s or 40s, I think, one of the one DAR chapter, because they were afraid that the site would be lost because it's agricultural land there. You know, it's in the floodplain associated with Seneca River and it's always farmed and it, the site would be lost. And they went in there and built a stone monument, not a replica of the fort, but it's kind of a rectangular thing and more than head high. <laughs> and they built it on the corner of where the fort was so that if you excavate right here, you'll find the corner of the fort and put up a brass plaque and all that. Thank goodness they did because it probably we probably never would know uh, where it had been before. So they're in the second year right now. And uh, I'm very curious. With that complete documentary record, I'm I'm really optimistic that we will eventually know the full story of, of one of the things they found in, in the documentary record was there was an ancient Indian village there before the Cherokee village Seneca, which was some distance down river. It's called Old Seneca on maps. And I had never noticed it before, but if you look on Muzon's map from 1775, it shows old Seneca. That's where Fort Rutledge was built. So there was that. 
Now, the other thing Andrew Williamson did before he embarked on this scorch and burn policy or program up to the middle, the Cherokees were, the Cherokees really considered themselves in two divisions, the overhills and the lower town. The lower towns were Ayarate and the over town, Orate and Ayarate. So anyway, uh, the, the, the plan was to go all the way to Tennessee. And they, when I say scorch and burn, at every Cherokee village they encountered, Cherokees had extensive peach orchards. They had had peaches since uh, DeSoto came through in 1540. They'd had them a long time. And, and had orchards, they had cornfields. And, and just in a Seneca, Seneca town, they burned 500 bushels of corn. That's a year's worth of food for an entire village. Gone, burned. They cut down all the corn. They cut down the peach orchards. You have to grow a peach tree four years before it flowers the first time. You know, right. so right. I mean, there nobody's going to reoccupy a Seneca town. They burned all the houses. They burned the council house. They cut down the corn. They cut the peach trees. They did this in every Cherokee village they went to. So from that day when they returned to the battle site there at, at Seneca town, they burned it and. Williamson dispatched uh, Benjamin Tutt and Colonel Neal to go that Cherokee path that I was talking about leads you to Pickens, or, or near to Pickens. There was a Cherokee village called Sakona, just outside Pickens, literally within sight of the city limit sign of Pickens. We, we the Historical uh, Society, put up a historical marker there two years ago because it had largely been forgotten. I bet you there wasn't one in a thousand people who live in Pickens knew that there had been a Cherokee village there just outside the city limits, and I know exactly where it was because two friends of mine have collected there and have an impressive artifact collection. So we put up a historical mark. So they say, were to burn. Say, I'm sorry. When, yeah. When you say Neil, yeah. Is that Andrew Neil? Yes. From the new acquisition district or yes. the Tryon? I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the same one because same he came one from that new at, acquisition. Yeah. He died at uh, Rocky Mountain. I think so. Yeah. And, and I know Arthur Ferry. I have his journal. He was under Neil's command, and they were both from the new acquisition, which wow. was that area. Very know. interesting. Yeah. Okay. All, right. All right. So they are assigned the task, and they had a considerable force with them. I forgot the numbers, but it wasn't a, a little raiding party of, mm -hmm. you know, 30 men. It was a considerable force. Their mission was to burn Sakona Town, go straight from there to East Atoy. And, and I, I know the exact route they took uh, to get from Sakona to East Atoy Valley. They slipped up on them and, and they said that the, the Cherokees, their meals were still on the table and their beds were still warm. They got words. Apparently the, the Cherokees had had dogs since prehistoric times. The Cherokees are thought to have been in this region for about a thousand years and they had dogs and dogs started barking. <laughs> you know, here comes... Neil and, and company and they're trying to slip in on them and the Cherokees just hightailed it and they were out of there. I think maybe there was one old woman or something like that there. So they burned the town, cut down the corn, burned their, their uh, peach, cut down their peach orchards. From there, the next town downstream down the East Torrey River is Quakarachi, which not a lot of people know about, but it was a, it was a considerable town. 200 people lived there and that kind of thing, just down river from East Torrey. Same deal, burn, scorch. They moved down there to the Kiwi River, where the East Toy River runs into the Kiwi River was a really large uh, 
Cherokee village called Toxaway. It's one of the few that was excavated to any degree uh, in 1967 when Duke Power was flooding uh, Lakes Kiwi and Joe Cassie. They gave the archaeologists one year to excavate Fort Prince George, Kiwi Village, and whatever other sites they were interested in. And Toxaway is one of the ones they actually excavated, and that, that results of that study are in the Easley Library. It's printed and published and widely available. So, so they burned Toxaway. The Toxaway, you're talking about right, right where Whitewater Falls comes No, down, th this, is, this is the point. It's a floodplain in the old Kiwi Riverbed. Large, I'd say 400 to 600 acres of floodplain. The Cherokee villages are all along rivers in the floodplain because corn, they did not have a recollection of where they got corn. They had an oral tradition and a myth about Salu, and it, it's, they didn't remember where they got corn. They had had it that long. Corn revolutionized the Southeastern Indian society. Mm -hmm. They had been hunters and gatherers. Now all of a sudden with corn, which they got from Mexico, it was actually through selective breeding developed over about a thousand years from Teosinte, which is a grass. They had a bigger head and you go out there and you pick the ones with the biggest head and that's what you plant next year and pretty soon you got something with a cob on it and, and you know something that resembles what we think of as a corn. And eventually by the historic period when the Cherokees were here, the Mississippian period, that was a, a considerable source of energy having, you know, it had an eight or ten inch cob on it, it had kernels like, like Indian corn as well folks call it in the colonial period and uh, it revolutionized southeastern Indian culture because now they could stay in one place. And now they were planting fields in the in the river bottoms. That's right because they had the corn is, is a heavy utilizer of nitrogen, phosphorus, mm -hmm. and, and potassium. As a matter of fact you have to side dress corn with extra nitrogen toward the, the end of the growing season. It, it consumes, it's got to have a nutrient-rich soil. And floodplains are nutrient rich because that's where, like up here in the mountains, all the nutrients from the rotting leaves and the decaying logs wash it down and it collects in these floodplains from the time when the riverbed floods and water recedes and all the nutrients are there. So, where if, if there's a Cherokee village in northwestern South Carolina, it's located in a floodplain of a, was located there. Did it again. Oh, so, anyway. Uh, Toxway was one of those fairly large villages there, scorch and burn, cut everything down. The plan was they were going to meet the Williamson's main force at Kiwi, the, the principal. There were only seven mother towns uh, in the entire Cherokee nation. It wasn't really a nation, but the Cherokee territory. Two of those were in, in Pickens and Oconee counties. One of them was East Atoy that I just talked about, and one of them, the other one was Kiwi. Now, Kiwi gets a lot of attention, and there's a great documentary record of it because the Cherokee Path that I've talked about, mm -hmm. the main travel route from literally King Street in Charleston was the Cherokee Path. It stayed on the uh, west side of the Congaree River, then the Santee River, the Saluda River, crossed the entire state of South Carolina without crossing any of the four major rivers, and went on up to Fort Loudoun in Tennessee. Uh, which was built after Fort Prince George, but at that point it was the most interior fort. It was way up at Teleco, Tennessee, near Maryville, which is near Knoxville. So that's a long way. That's about 500 miles from Charleston. Uh, but because the Cherokee Path went right through Kiwi, that's why we know so much about it. Is everybody who came through there wrote their impressions. William Bartram, 
America's first native-born naturalist, for example, came through in 1775, about, well, before Williamson's campaign. As a matter of fact, he spent the night with Andrew Alexander Cameron. <laughs> yeah, he had, had had been told, you go find this Alexander Cameron and he'll write you a letter and you show that to the Cherokees and you'll be good to go. And he came through Kiowa and, and made the observation, for example, which was a surprise to me, that uh, Cherokees by 1775 were living in log cabins, not in their traditional, you know, they had a winter house and a summer house, which were built from mud and dauble kind of thing. They had switched over to European style. But he remarked that by that time, Fort Prince George, which had been built in 1753, was now rotted down and gone. It was nothing but a trading post. So anyway, Burn, uh, Sakona, Eastatoi, Kwakarachi, Toxaway, Sugartown. There was another town in between Toxaway and Kiwi. Then everybody meets up at Kiwi and they lit out on this Scorch and Burn campaign, which took a month or more, but it was devastating. This is 1767, 1776, and May 20th, 1777, back down at Dews Corner, the Cherokees ceded all of their territory in South Carolina. That was it. There was no recovery. They, by 1777, the year after Andrew Williamson's campaign, there were virtually no Cherokees left in South Carolina. They had all gone to I mean, you gotta have something to eat, right? You know, you gotta have a place to live. And so they went to northeastern Georgia and eastern Tennessee. Now there was some some folks who returned back a little later, several years later, and and they they ceded all of their territory um, north of that line we talked about earlier. You know that I found in the Charleston Library down there. That line that is the Anderson Abbeville boundary now. Everything north of that they ceded everything except a little area in Northern and Pickens County. And that line runs right by uh, Oconee Station and runs through the East Atoy Valley and up over Sassafras Mountain. They reserved that because there were several Cherokees. Cherokees were quite good agriculturalists. You know, they had long experience, generational experience growing corn and pumpkins and squash. And when they talk about squash, we're not talking about the yellow squash that we make squash casserole with. This was mostly gourd-type squash, like pumpkins and like this. Well, they, they were quite good, and there were some Cherokee farms that were pretty substantial in northern Oconee County, like on Chattooga River and floodplain areas, and they wanted to reserve those. They eventually sold them to the state of South Carolina in 1815, I believe, for about $5 million. So at that point, that, that it, it was not until 1815 that, that all of what is now South Carolina was actually part of, of the state. So anyway, that's kind of the end of that story, at least for the Cherokees. Now, you remember this is part of a three-legged plan, and the Cherokees are a fundamental part of that, creating havoc and diverting the attention of Sumter and Pickens and Marion and all these others. Um, and, and now that's all over, uh, 1777. The Cherokees are no longer a factor in the Revolutionary War. So Andrew Williams and, and Andrew Neal... Those were two names that you mentioned, yeah. right? Who else was with this group of fighters? You know, I actually was thinking about this morning because I remember reading very recently, I read a lot. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you can only retain so much, but I remember it was about a month ago I was reading another account. There, like most of these battles and skirmishes and engagements, there are several different accounts. And, and they almost never say the same thing. And one of them was a 
pretty extensive listing who all was in that detachment. You know, Andrew Pickens was, was a part of that detachment. As a matter of fact, um, the, the story of Andrew Pickens' rain fight, which is kind of legendary in this, in this area, and really tells you a lot about Andrew Pickens as a, as a, as a leader. Um, I'll tell you the quick version of the story because it's part of the uh, Andrew Williamson campaign. Alexander Cameron was actually, they had been told that Alexander Cameron was on Oconee Creek. And, and so now Andrew Williamson's people are actually camped where they had been at the Oconee Indian Village as a kind of a resting place for marching on into the mountains of northeastern Georgia. And so Cameron sends Andrew Pickens and about 20 or 30, maybe as many as 40 militia up to Mossy Creek, which is a tributary to Oconee Creek, which are in turn a tributary to Little River. And, and so they're marching up to Mossy Creek, heading toward the Indian village, Tomasi, T-O-M-A-S-S-E-E. You'll see it's spelled T-A-M-A-S-S-A-E-E. There's a DAR school there. Been there since 1920s, the Tomasi DAR school. So anyway, they're marching up the creek, and they're approaching the site where the Oak on the uh, Tomasi Indian village, well, Cherokee village was. And they enter this, it's a floodplain area, so the Indians have got corn growing in there, and also there's a cane break. A cane break, we don't have true cane breaks anymore because they were dependent on fire. The Cherokees managed the woods for cane breaks, and, and so uh, you have to burn the woods every year to keep it from being overwhelmed with hardwood sapling, poplar and, and oaks and elms and things like this. And if, and if you don't burn annually, then the hardwoods take over and, and the, the cane can't grow. Uh, White Hampton III uh, was a great bear hunter, and he came up the Savannah River because he had a place in Highlands, North Carolina, High Hampton, uh, as a summer retreat. And being a bear hunter, he made observations that you know are of interest to me because I'm also a bear hunter. And he remarked that uh, that there was a cane break in the upper. Kiwi River, which had to be that area I'm talking about, uh, that was a half mile wide on both sides. Now, now, when he's talking about a cane break, that is an area that is nothing but cane, just river cane, because it will colonize to the point where if you threw a rock in there, it'd bounce back at you. But nothing but bears and bear hunters and I think Bachman Swallow or Bachman Sparrow or something else thrived on the seed of cane, it's now extinct. But anyway, um, it was a unique habitat. There were still cane breaks in the late 1700s, and there was a cane break at the head of this floodplain. So they were going through cornfields, which apparently had grown up in weeds, and then there was a cane break. And, and the Cherokees' favorite tactic, I could sit here and, and give you a half dozen examples of this. They realized very early on, I don't know whether they did this in warfare with other Native American tribes or not, but during the Revolutionary War, they had learned this trick that you attack in the pinch points. Now, pinch points are where people are concentrated. In, in the coast, that might mean where a river and a slough comes together and you got to go around it so everybody has to go. You know where they're going to be and they're all going to be confined or where a creek meets a river or whatever. In the mountains of South Carolina, that means the gaps. The gaps in the ridgelines, the, the deer and the bear and the turkeys and the deer and the bear and the turkey hunters all crossed the mountains and the gaps. The Native Americans for centuries have crossed the rivers, the mountains and the gaps. 
Why go over a 3,000 foot mountain when you can cross that up gap in between two mountains that's 2,400 feet in elevation? So if you look at all the paved roads in the upstate of South Carolina that go up into western North Carolina, they all go through the gaps, the major gaps there. So the, the Cherokees always tried to attack in, 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 in pinch points like that, in Gap. There was the Battle of Gap Hill where they caught Marion and, and some, and I think Andrew Pickens and some troops in the Battle of Gap Hill. So anyway, Andrew Pickens is coming up the stream and he's getting to the point where the, the floodplain area is narrowing and the ground is rising. Cherokees love to attack from rising ground and they're unaware. They have no sign of apprehension or anything. They, you know, they have an awareness that they're approaching the Cherokee village of Tomasi. All of a sudden, they start taking fire from all directions. I mean, literally, 360 degrees. All of a sudden, Andrew Pickens is taking fire with, you know, 40 men, something like that. He immediately tells them to form two rings, an outer ring and an inner ring. That's why it's called the ring fight. It was pure genius. We don't know where, how many of them there are. We don't know where they're concentrated or randomly distributed around, but he puts his men into rings with orders to the outer ring to fire at will, you know, make every shot count. But as soon as you, you got your man and you can make the shot, shoot, fall back. The man behind you will shoot and a continue, we'll have continuous fire. The fire was so devastating, the Cherokees over, overestimated how many of them there were. There were about estimated to be about 120 Cherokees and 40 or 50 of Andrew Pickens' men. And the Cherokees said, whoa, there must be 100, 200 people in there because the fire was constant. You know, one man shoots and falls back, he reloads. And, you know, with a musket, it takes some time to, you know, you fire, and then you're very vulnerable until you're completely reloaded and aimed again, and that can be as much as three or four minutes. That's lethal, you know, that can be lethal on the battlefield. It was pure genius, because as soon as one man fired, he drops to the ground, he reloads, the other guy rises up, finds his target, shoots. The Cherokees were wild, and not to mention, they killed a lot of Cherokees right off, although Pickens' men was taking some pretty serious losses too. Well, his brother, younger brother, Joseph Pickens, had, a, had another militia unit that was supposed to follow him to that destination and on that scouting mission, they heard the fire and started moving double quick time. And, and so now the Cherokees, uh, you know, are flanked. And when you're flanked on the battlefield, you're trapped. You're trapped in with whoever you're, you're engaged with now, and now you're taking in fire from the rear. And the Cherokees, the best way we can do is get the, get the heck out of Dodge. And they did, they just kind of dispersed in the woods, but anyway. Uh, Andrew Pickens has described that as his most desperate battle, and he said he honestly thought he was going to die that day. And you can understand why. I mean, how you get out of that situation? Cherokees got you surrounded. You're trapped in there, limited number of men. Thank goodness his brother came along, and we don't know what would happen. Now, there's another version of that story. I hate to even tell it because I don't want to perpetuate myths, but it, it, it does go way back in the documentary record. Even Andrew Pickens' grandson, in giving an account of the ring fight tells this story. All right, cane is a type of bamboo, and everybody's familiar with bamboo that has these these channel of the, what do you call them? It's like a constricting ring with a membrane inside. It's a chamber, and you know they they go up the length of the cane, and there's moisture in there. And so if you heat that up, as in putting it in a fire, eventually that moisture gets to the boiling point and it explodes. 
and it makes a sound. And if you have a rush pile out in, in a field and you throw a bunch of cane on there, eventually it's going to light popcorn. It's going to start pop, 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 pop. Now, one version of that story is that Andrew Pickens, because they were in a cane break, set the cane on fire, and that's what confused the Cherokees and thought, whoa, there's a whole lot more of them than we thought there was. I don't know about that. Um, number one, wouldn't Andrew Pickett's men get burned up if they set the cane break on fire that they were taking refuge in? I don't know. Well, I'm going with the original version of the story. <laughs> but like I say, it was pure genius. Yeah. And you know what? I don't know if you know the story about Daniel Morgan and Andrew Pickens the night before Cowpens. Daniel Morgan was very reluctant to take on Bannister Tarleton, bloody band. Uh, he had a moderate force, and, and obviously these are the overhill, you know, the guys that, that, that are rough and rugged and they're expert marksmen, but the numbers were not favorable. The terrain was not favorable. And he was very hesitant to take on Tarleton, and Andrew Pickens encouraged him emphatically to take him on. And he told him, if you don't do it, I will do it with militia. And, and so he says, okay, we're going. We're going for it. And I don't know that we will ever know, but based on that experience with Andrew Pickens in the ring fight, what Daniel Morgan came up with was, again, pure genius and a, and a strategy that the British could not have anticipated. He took the more inexperienced militia, who were good for about one shot, and then they turned tail and run. And, and, and understandably, because like I say, you're vulnerable for another three minutes or four minutes until somebody comes and relieves you. And so he, he put the militia in two lines, some distance apart. The British see them there. They realize they're militia. And the first, and, they had, and Andrew Pickens had given, Andrew Pickens was in charge of the militia. And he had given them instructions, pretty much the same as in the ring fight. He said, pick your target, make every shot count. But when you see your target, you don't need my permission or anybody else's. Take your fire, hit the ground, move behind, fall back, some distance, move behind, and, and the other, the line behind you will stand up and take fire. Now, if they're 10, 15, 20 yards back, the British see this. Look at those, look at those guys. They're running. We got them. This is early in the battle, and they say this is going to be easy. So they keep advancing because you know they're falling back. Well, when they fall back, Pickens' men had split up and double-flanked them from behind. And as I mentioned earlier, when you get flanked on the bottom and on the battlefield, you're trapped. Now you're taking fire from the, you're advancing on this line of militia, and the provincial troops also move in to fill in the gaps. And, and you know, the story of how it ended right. and, and literally was the turning point. But anyway, it was Andrew Pickens who had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with Daniel Morgan. And, and you know, Daniel Morgan was look, looking at preserving his troops and, and making, looking for a better day to take on Bannister Tarleton. And, and you could make a good case for that. But I think Andrew Pickens said, it's now or never. We're here. We're going to do it. And they did. <laughs>